0: Marijuana smoking, experts point out, can make a helpless addict of its victim within weeks, causing physical and moral ruin and death. The first legally sold
1: marijuana here goes to an Iraqi war veteran.
0: A new insurance study out this week looked at car crashes
1: in several states that allowed the use of recreational marijuana. Barry Peterson, you're a
0: doc, you've studied this, you've talked to the researchers, right. you're saying marijuana can kill cancer cells. Who taught you how to do this stuff? I learned it by watching you. Marijuana
1: is illegal under federal law. States have legalized recommendations. no wonder you can't
0: open your eyes. What do you expect doping yourself up with this wrong stuff? What do you know about pot?
1: Good morning. This is your host, Jen Procacci, and you are listening to The Cannabis Hour a bi-weekly radio program where I discuss all things cannabis. Thanks for joining me. It's Thursday, February 18th, and I'm broadcasting live from my farm on the outskirts of Mendocino National Forest with the help of Rich Engineering in the Philo Studio. This is a quarantine-safe broadcast. I've got a fantastic guest joining us today. Her name is Dr. Olga Kobalchuk and she is a medical doctor, scientist, and researcher with the University of Leithbridge in Canada. Dr. Kovalchuk is currently studying the ability of cannabis to be a treatment for COVID-19. She was actually a guest on the Cannabis Hour back in May of 2020, and she is joining us again today to update us on the progress of her research and her own experiences with COVID since we last spoke back in May. But before... Before we get started with that, I have a quick announcement to make. This is a message from Monique Ramirez of the Covalo Cannabis Advocacy Group, and it pertains to a survey that's being conducted by the Covalo Cannabis Advocacy Group on the subject of cannabis cultivation expansion, which I'm sure, as you know, is a very hot topic in our community right now. I'm going to read this announcement from her. And I'm also going to say that at the end, I'll be announcing a link where you can take this survey. And the link is a little bit long, and it's probably maybe a little bit hard for somebody to remember. So get ready to write it down if you're interested. And also know that you can always email me at kzyxcannabishour at gmail.com. That's kzyxcannabishour at gmail.com if you want me to send you this link in an email. So this survey is about um, gathering our community's opinions, cannabis cultivators and non-cultivators alike. We're looking for the opinions of the whole community of this county in regards to your opinions on cultivation expansion. So if you think that's something you might be interested in participating in this survey, please get ready with a pen to write this um, link down that I'm going to announce at the end of this message that I'm going to read now. Dear fellow Mendocino County resident, the Covalo Cannabis Advocacy Group, CCAG, is sponsoring a survey on cultivation expansion. The county is set to open up to larger commercial cannabis sites once the phase three ordinance is passed. Phase three is currently on track to go to the planning commission in early March. CCAG has concerns about some of the recommendations being made by the Board of Supervisors in relation to expanded canopy allowances for cannabis. Currently, the County Ordinance 10A17 allows a maximum of 10,000 square feet of plant canopy in designated zoning. Under the proposed phase three ordinance, all permits would be discretionary through a land use permit process. Three identified zoning types would be permitted to expand cultivation up to 10% of acreage allowance. The identified sites are in agland, upland residential, and rangeland zoning. For example, a rangeland parcel of 100 acres, if approved under the discretionary process, could obtain a permit to cultivate 10 acres of cannabis. This is the 10% that you may have heard floating around. Many members of the cannabis industry do not wish to see this type of expansion allowed in our county. However, there are many in the cannabis industry that argue expansion is the right path forward for economic development in order for the industry in our county to stay competitive in the marketplace statewide, as well as to be prepared for when interstate commerce becomes a viable path. CCAG believes there should be community engagement from all sides on this issue, which has countywide impacts. CCAG has created a survey to ask the community if it is in favor of the proposed board direction or a different allowance for expansion. The survey will remain open until March 1st. The results will be shared at the Planning Commission and Board of Supervisors meetings. CCAG appreciates your time and requests your help in distributing the survey widely to Mendocino County residents. Together, we can make a powerful recommendation that is truly representative of the values we all hold as a community. If you have any questions, feel free to reach us by email at covelo_cannabis_group at gmail.com. That's covelo_cannabis_group at gmail.com. Sincerely, Monique Ramirez from the Cobolo Cannabis Advocacy Group. And so here is the link where you can take that survey if you'd like to write it down. It's https dot backslash backslash s dot surveyplanet dot com backslash K seven four six K I'm going to read that again. It's https://colon uh, dot two dots, two backslashes, s.surveyplanet.com, and that's a lowercase k, the numbers 746, an uppercase k, a lowercase w an uppercase W, a lowercase E, and an uppercase X. And again, if you would like me to just send this to you in an email, you're welcome to email me at kzyxcannabishour at gmail.com. And that, again, is kzyxcannabishour at gmail.com. All right, thanks for considering that, and I really do urge all of our community members to take this survey because this is a huge issue that is going to impact us as as an entire county, and um, we'll have a great impact on our small farmers. That could be either positive or negative, depending on which way this goes. So please weigh in and give us your opinion. All right. I'm going to be moving on to our guest for today, Dr. Olga Kowalchuk. Dr. Kowalchuk received her Bachelor of Medicine with honors in 1992, an MD in stomatology in 1994. Um, she got these degrees at the ivano Frank National Medical University in Ukraine. In 1994, she began a career at the Medical University and the Chernobyl Research Center, studying consequences of the Chernobyl accident. And in 1998, she received a PhD in medical genetics. Dr. Kovalchuk conducted extensive postdoctoral training at Friedrich Meischer Institute and in Novartis Syngenta in Switzerland. Currently, Dr. Kobalchuk is a professor and a Board of Governors Research Chair in Epigenetics of Health and Diseases at the University of Lethbridge, Alberta. From 2008 to 2018, she held the Canadian Institutes for Health Research Institute of Gender and Health Chair in Gender and Health and in Gender Work and Health. She is an internationally renowned leader and expert in epigenetics and epigenomics of health and disease, environmental epigenomics, and radiation biology and oncology. She is studying mechanisms of disease epigenetics, novel precision medicine approaches, and novel cannabis-based disease therapies. She is a co-founder of the Pathway RX a research and development medical cannabis company developing personalized approaches for cannabis-based treatments of cancer and age-related diseases. Dr. Kovalchuk, are you here on the line with us today?
0: Yes, I am. Thank you very much for inviting me again.
1: Oh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us again. I'm so excited to connect with you and hear all about how your research has progressed since the last time we spoke. Where are you broadcasting from today? Are you up in Canada?
0: Ah, uh, yes, we are. We are in Westbridge. Well, I think now nobody travels much, so we all stay put.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the truth? I can't believe it's been um, it's been ten months since you last joined us on yeah. the air, and here we are, still in the throes of this pandemic. Um, we, know, we didn't know back then what the future held, and here we are, and I guess we still don't know what's going to be coming down the line. So how have you been since we last spoke?
0: Well, you know, it has been quite an interesting 10 months. Yes, indeed, time flies. And it has been quite interesting and productive and somewhat challenging in terms of research-wise. And uh, unfortunately, yes, we had our own encounter with COVID. And that was definitely quite an experience on its own, but we have learned a lot of things about the disease ourselves, so I think we, we now, if anything positive can be taken from it, we are slightly better qualified to uh, to essentially try to research it because we understand what it can do to your body. So, but research-wise, we have moved forward quite a lot, and uh, we are really hopeful to be able to do... Well, other major steps in the very, you know, I'd say upcoming weeks and months.
1: Wow. Yes, um, I'm so sorry to hear that you and your family had a personal experience with COVID. But I think you have a great perspective on that in terms of um, it giving you more perspective as a researcher. So you you did publish two papers in the time that we spoke last. Um, one of them is in search of preventative strategies, novel high CBD cannabis sativa extracts, 8s ACE2 expression in COVID 19 gateway tissues. And the other one is here um, fighting the storm, could novel anti TNFA and anti IL. 6C sativa cultivars tame the cytokine storm in COVID 19. So, I really want to dive into those in a little bit and let you talk all about those papers and the findings um, that you published there. But before we get started with that, would you just share with our listeners sort of a general background on the research you've been doing involving cannabis as a treatment for COVID? Mm-hmm
0: yes. uh, As such, we have been researching cannabis way before COVID started. So we have been involved in trying to identify new medicinal strains. Um, My husband actually is quite involved in breeding and generating new cannabis strains. And I think over 1,500 new hybrids have been generated. And we've been kind of particularly day-by-day day studying their medicinal properties, identifying some that may be uh, having anti-cancer properties, anti-inflammatory properties, anti-aging. So as such, when COVID hit, we were there studying cannabis, and we thought that it just was very logical because COVID, again, as any viral disease, has a huge inflammatory component, and there is huge, of course, um anti-inflammatory potential that's there in cannabis. So we thought the two should merge together because obviously you need to, you know, tackle inflammation and there may be some existing uh, strains that we may have already start, you know, started to work on that may bring that potential. So we looked at the data we already had at that time and also, you know, a little bit of a history on it, uh, in the very, very beginning of pandemic, everybody started looking into how does this virus get into our bodies in the first place. Yes, we know it's respiratory virus, so we kind of breathe it in, right? So, or it gets uh, onto our mucous membranes from surfaces. You pick something up that, you, to, you know, take a bite or lick it or whatever, right, and get it. So, but then... Yes, it gets into your system, but how does it get inside the cell? Because for the virus to be alive, it has to be in your cell. When it's on the table, it's actually not alive. The properties of life are being, one of the properties of life is being able to reproduce. So without being in our cells, in the host cells, the virus can't reproduce. It needs to essentially kind of hijack our molecular systems in order to make more of itself. So, so, but the question is, how does it get in? And all um, publications going to the first SARS epidemic, because SARS-CoV-2 is kind of a younger brother, slightly meaner, uh, than, uh, than the first SARS virus. <clears throat> and that first SARS virus was identified as entering through the receptor called ACE2, angiotensin converting enzyme 2. So, and way several groups have suggested it probably is through the same route. Then it was confirmed. We started to look whether or not any of our abstracts are capable of modifying the levels of ACE2, specifically in the, what we call, gateway tissues. Our oral epithelial tissues, mesopharyngeal epithelium tissues, lung tissues. Because, again, those are the ways the virus uses. We breathe it in, gets in, right? So, and luckily enough, we had some data already because, as I mentioned, we were looking at the anti inflammatory effects and amongst many other tissues, we used tissue models of lung tissue as well as oral epitheliums. So we looked and we were quite excited to find that several extracts. Actually, were capable to modulate the levels of this receptor in oral, uh, in oral tissues and in upper um, airway epithelial tissues. So, from that on, we thought, okay, it makes sense, let's expand a little bit. And uh, so, that was the focus of our first paper, where we proposed that trying to use some cannabis extracts that can modulate or uh, reduce the levels of this receptor in the oral tissue as well as in the the apiaromy tissues and these gateway tissues can be, you know, kind of further explored in terms of kind of closing these gateways temporarily for the virus. Because if you reduce the number of these receptors, then potentially one may hypothesize that less virus will get in and people will either get sick, they will get, you know, less sick, or uh, essentially they you know, will, will result in a disease um, that will be kind of, you know, not as harsh as it can be. So, and then, of course, so we submitted the first paper, and uh, it went through quite a rigorous review. We had to do lots of additional experiments, and this is the beauty of peer review, uh, that actually people suggest a lot of things that sometimes you may, you may think, oh yeah, I'm I haven't even thought about it, right? So people would you know, give you advice and suggest lots of interesting experiments, and that was done, and we had to do, as I said, a lot of additional experiments, and now um, the paper is out, and what was really interesting, that out of many extra out of many lines that we tested, not every line was effective, and even though these lines had very comparable oftentimes levels of cbd not every high cbd line was as effective as, as the other line and there were some lines that were not effective at all so it is not just cbd that's responsible that we identified and it's a combination of course of other molecules in the extract such as of course as you know terpenes other cannabinoids and That led to a very, very interesting collaboration with a clinical group and with a company called Good Pharmaceuticals with Dr. Larry Good and his team. And that was actually extremely interesting collaboration that we started. And right now there is a clinical study ongoing whereby we are, you know, they are, we are collaborating with them, uh, looking for the potential of the mouthwash based on some of the extracts and their combinations that we identified, on their potential to uh, actually prevent uh, COVID disease, not not prevent, let's say mitigate the, the severity of COVID disease. So we should be... We're very much hoping to hear very, very soon because the study is nearing its end. And again, it, it is a placebo-controlled study, so some individuals receive placebo, some receive the uh, the uh, full combination mouse wash. And once, of course, they it is a blinded study, so we don't really know what's happening until the study is fully. Um, you know, kind of closed, sort of, and uh, completed, only then everything will be unwinded and we'll be able to see how um, the study participants performed and whether or not uh, our hypothesis actually kind of stood the trial of this this very important clinical study. So we are keeping our fingers crossed kind of every day, hoping, again, it's, it's nearing the completion. It's pretty much, I'd say, several weeks to months that we should have all the patients, and once all the patients have continued and finished the study protocol, then we'll be able to see whether or not we're right, and we're really hoping, think, keeping fingers crossed. So that was the first story.
1: Oh, that is absolutely incredible and so fascinating to hear you discuss all of the different methods that you employed um, through studying CBD and the different terpenes to see their effect on preventing COVID infections. And I have to commend you for your work because we certainly need all the tools that are available to us um, as as a human species to combat this pandemic. And the mouthwash sounds very promising and like something that could be easily available to a really wide demographic of people, hopefully across the entire world. So I really look forward to hearing more on that. When that study is complete, we'll have to have you back on for another episode of the Cannabis Hour. Um, And I noticed something that stood out to me while you were talking about the work that you've been doing in your research and something that I had actually read in one of the papers that you sent me was that you noticed um, that not all CBD extracts or um, CBD products that you used were effective in preventing the disease in the same way as others. Um, And something that I read in one of the papers that you wrote here was that you did a study where you actually burned human tissue and then you were treating the human tissue with different um, CBD compounds and that some of them didn't work at all. And one of them, if I understood it correctly, actually made it worse. So I think that's fascinating because I'm a cannabis cultivator and, you know, cultivators talk all the time about the benefit of what we refer to as whole plant extracts or using the entire cannabis plant and how you can't isolate something like just CBD and expect it to have the same effect as the entire plant um comp as all the plant compounds together as the plant presents them would have on you when you consume them and of course we're you know farmers not scientists so all of our experiences just come from personal use of cannabis or what we experience while we're cultivating it But I was wondering if you noticed if there were any specific um, combinations of terpenes in relation to each other that were present in the compounds that were effective. Are there any terpenes that stand out to you as specifically medicinal when it comes to treating inflammation?
0: Uh, that is actually, this This is a great question, Jan, and indeed so, uh, we were quite surprised. So in the second paper, yes, the, um, we essentially, we looked at induction of inflammation by UV, which is classical, one of the classical modes, and then treating uh, these kind of you know, UV-induced infl- you know, inflamed, as we'll call them, tissues with different extracts and looking for uh, markers of inflammation going down. And the two markers, are TNF, tumor necrosis factor alpha, and L6 stands for interleukin-6. So these two are the key players in inflammation. And these very same two are the key players in what we know as the cytokine storm. So when uh, people get very, very severe COVID, so their immune system goes into overdrive. So these are molecules that are essentially, you know, markers of inflammation. So the immune system goes into overdrive. Inflammation goes through the roof. And then what happens is damage, severe damage to our own tissues, resulting to essentially organ failure, uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome. That's why people get on ventilators. So their the lungs don't function, why? Because they're so super inflamed. So, And indeed, we found that some of the extracts were absolutely great in reducing the levels of inflammatory markers. Not just these two, the whole paper describes the whole kind of concert of them. And there was another extract that did nothing. And there was the extract that actually, if anything, kind of uh, brought some of the inflammatory markers up. And this was, you know, quite an interesting discovery for us. And um, some of those strains where uh, we published the, you know, we published the tb uh content. And we actually further uh, continued this research. We should be submitting uh, the other paper very, very, very soon. We'll post it uh, also on Preprints, uh, where we actually expanded the battery of lines we tested and where we brought more high CBD lines, and just a little preview, there we also show that CBD alone does not stand the competition of the whole extract, like, really, like, the lines work much better than uh, just CBD alone. And yes, we expanded further, and again, it's not in the first paper, in the first two, but in the follow-up that we are about, as I said, to submit um, our work on terpenes. We identified several. One important thing is we identified actually several combinations that work. And right now, we are. Uh, I can't really uh, openly speak about them because we have just filed the patent application on them. So, and uh, so, once this is kind of all closed, and we will be submitting the paper, I sincerely hope within the upcoming two weeks, then I can essentially reveal the uh, the things because it will be protected. But yes, we have identified. Several combinations of terpenes. It's not necessarily a single one. Sometimes it's combinations uh, that actually are quite effective against uh, inflammation, as well as that are also effective against um, the uh, eventually against some of the other mechanisms of uh, that I that I involved in COVID nineteen. But you know, people who have been working in cannabis field already knew that. Cannabis is not cannabis is not cannabis, right? That different strains have different potencies, and some, for example, will be good against certain inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, whereas the other one will not be as efficacious, right? And yes, the roots are within those terpene combinations as well as minor cannabinoids. So it's not just terpenes, it's also minor cannabinoids.
1: Thank you, Olga. And if you are just tuning in, this is the Cannabis Hour, and I'm your host, Jen Prokachi. I'm joined today by Dr. Olga Kowalchuk, an internationally renowned leader and an expert in epigenetics and epigenomics of health and disease, environmental epigenomics, and radiation biology and oncology. She is studying mechanisms of disease, epigenetics, novel precision medicine approaches, and novel cannabis based disease therapies. She is also a co founder of Pathway Rx, a research and development medical cannabis company developing personalized approaches for cannabis based treatments of cancer and age related diseases. We are discussing her research of cannabis as a potential treatment for COVID-19. I will be opening up the phone lines to callers around 940. That's probably in about 10 minutes. So stay tuned if you've got a question or a comment, or if you'd just like to join this fascinating conversation that we are having today with Dr. Kovalchuk. Dr. Kovalchuk, I'm wondering if you would um, be willing to speak a little bit about your personal experience with COVID. I understand that you and your family members unfortunately did contract the virus. Sometime since we spoke last,
0: yes, uh, we. It was in November, and it's you know, before it's November, we all understood it's an nasty virus. We know it's a it's an nasty thing, a new virus. But and oftentimes you hear from people when they say, "Oh, you know, this is just the flu." And uh, this is one interesting misconception. The other misconception is, "Oh, you know, it ain't gonna affect me because I am just a fit person. I eat well. I exercise. You know, I'm I have no kind of any." bad habits and, you know, in my life and so on and so forth. I am, you know, eating healthy, exercise, and I'm a fit person. It ain't going to affect me. Well, I can tell that these two misconceptions are definitely really huge misconceptions for for the reason that, again, in my family, we're pretty fit people. We used to, before COVID, exercise every day, and actually, we do follow a very, very interesting program of wonderful personal trainer Sydney Cummins. I kind of, I, I, I didn't know what we will be talking about, but I'll just mention it. So, it, what really wonderful, wonderful program. So every day new workouts are posted, and we have been you know following them for for years, for you know every day. And we walk a lot, and we eat healthy, and we're really maintain trying to maintain very, very healthy lifestyle. And we ended up on oxygen. Was that counterintuitive? Yes, it was. Nobody really expected any of that to happen. So it is actually, again, uh, and one thing I can say, as the by my first degree as a medical doctor, I have seen a lot of flu around me, and I've had it sometime in my life. It's not a flu. I have never been that sick in my life. I should tell you, it was three weeks out of our lives. So, but And the whole interesting issue is the other importance of um, people always argue about the measures, are they good, are they not. Uh, the severity of the disease does depend upon how much virus did you get in the first thing. So that has been published, that has been accepted. So uh, if you actually caught a lot of virus, you can expect a more severe disease. So, of course, there may be other factors that are known, but uh, having said that, the other interesting thing is we do not know where we picked it up. We have some potential suspicions. I don't want to, you, know, you know, put them on the air. Uh, potentially where uh, a significant exposure could have happened so, and possibly, possibly could have been somebody who was asymptomatic. So, But that being said, again, it was quite a difficult experience, and actually we are considering together with um, the medical team we're working with to actually put it in the form of a case study because there were five people in our family who were sick. So put it in the form and, and put all of these experiences and the treatments and kind of, you know, the outcomes, the before and the after measures that we had uh, kind of, in the form of the article, in the form of the research paper, maybe it would help somebody. But, again, um, anti-inflammatory treatments were very, very important, and luckily, thank God, we are pretty much almost back on track and coming back to our exercise routine, back to our, again, normal, more or less normal routine that we are, that we are, again, following. So, but we did have to build up to it again.
1: Wow. Uh, Thank you so much for being willing to share that story with us. I think it's so important to talk about it when um, someone has contracted COVID because like you said there is so much misinformation out there and so many opinions um, that people bring to the table like oh it's just a flu or I mean I loved Mm -hmm. your perspective that you shared of how people think that just because they're healthy and they eat well and they exercise right that it won't affect them um, as much as it would someone who didn't have those habits but like you said. Unfortunately, those don't really seem to be protective factors when it comes to this virus. So I'm so sorry to hear that you and your family had that experience. Um, I'm so glad you all recovered, but I would like to point out to Our listeners also that you said that you contracted the virus in November and it's now February and you're saying you're almost now back on track. So that's four months later. So that is like a really pretty significant period of time to feel like you're still recovering from something and still getting back to be your normal self
0: again. Uh, that is that is actually true. And, you know, another very interesting personal note, of course, you know, my daughter her their wedding was completely affected because, you know, my daughter and her now husband, their wedding was supposed to be twenty second of November, of course. Yes, the wedding happened. It was a classical COVID wedding. They were standing on a balcony and the marriage commissioner was standing essentially across the driveway and across the road. I don't even know how many meters so but it still happened. <laughs> So uh but yes, it's actually very true what you said. The virus is it's a quite nasty virus. It has this ups and downs. One could day you feel like, Oh, I'm fine and then the next day you're totally back to ground zero. So it has this, you know, waves of how it affects you. It uh does affect lungs because actually in our family four people out of five uh had pneumonia. My mom had very, very severe one. And, I mean, my mom is an uh, older person. She's 73, so, but again. Uh, and even with us, we had a fairly small pneumonia, but it still affects really majorly. And then what happens is it's very easy to lose your fitness level over a relatively short period of time. So, yes, we were, uh, in terms of disease itself, we were very, very doing very, don't know, I should say, poorly for several weeks. About two weeks of actually fever that was that was there. So and all these weeks, of course, not only you can't exercise, you can you know barely exist. So then you're still very sick. Then you can't breathe. Your you know lung capacity drops down because of, of everything, and as I said, we we wear on oxygen for quite some time. Thank God we were not in the hospital, but we had home oxygen therapy with the oxygen concentrators, and we are really grateful and blessed to have a great medical team that worked with us. So, uh, but after you affected for you know in such a major way, it's only after. Several months, I'd say, in mid to end, close to you know December, that we kind of started being close to Christmas. Started feeling like I could do stretches again, or I could do yoga again. So somebody who used to actually pump a lot of you know (laughs) serious weights and uh, doing that before in early November, I was thinking that I could do qigong and I could do yoga in the end of December. And it's only kind of, you know, we started walking again when we were allowed to go out uh, and uh, essentially started building up. And it's just now that I am almost back to the weights that I used to exercise with. And it's essentially mid-November. And I'm still not there fully. Same thing, for for example, for my daughter. So she is, just actually a few days ago, she said, yes, I, I think I'm back to the weights I used to to, to do before so it it takes time because when it hits your system it's not like next day you don't have the fever and you are back to on track no it's a very very nasty thing oh
1: uh, thank Thank you so much for sharing that with us because it's so important to share these stories with people, especially as the pandemic drags on, you know, we have all become weary of social isolation and social distancing mm-hmm. and wearing masks. It just wears on you. And I think, you know, the human psychology is that you start to want to believe that it's not such a big deal. I know it's not so dangerous. I know it's not so scary. And of course, you know, this is something our brains do after we've been under stress for a really long period of time. And it is so important for us to remain realistic and for us to know that this is actually a very dangerous virus that we do not want to contract So thank you so much for sharing that story, especially with your perspective as a scientist and as someone in the field of medicine, you're a very reputable person and we can trust what your opinion is on this. So I was also wondering if you would be willing to share um, what your thoughts are on the COVID vaccine and if you think, is this something you're going to be getting even though you had COVID and what is that like up in Canada with the whole vaccine process?
0: You know, uh, it's, it's very, you know, I think it's a very, very, very hot topic right now. And one thing uh, that we have been always, you know, kind of sort of discussing with colleagues, with friends, even with family, I was like, there are two very, very important aspects to this pandemic. One, vaccine development. And the second one is also development of treatment protocols. Because vaccines are still being rolled out. Vaccines are, you know, supply goes up and down and up and down, and it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a developing story, right? And um, it, I think also it's very, very important to focus not just on vaccines, but also on treatment. Because even with vaccines, unfortunately, there probably will still be people who will contract it. It probably will be lighter much lighter, but as we now know, even the lighter disease can leave some marks, kind of, you know, can take a little bit of a, you know, make a dent kind of in your health. So, uh, I think it is also important to uh, give enough attention to, not just to the vaccines, but also the treatment. As to the vaccines, uh, again, vaccines are a very, very good way to prevent diseases, Vaccines are excellent way to, um, oftentimes, if they do not prevent it completely, they at least uh, lead to much milder disease. And one thing I can tell, that if there was a vaccine that could have prevented me being, you know, losing three weeks out of my life completely, I barely remember what happened, I would have jumped on that opportunity. Okay, but unfortunately, that was available we contracted it. Uh, yes, now we do have a lot of antibodies. We got tested. We, we do have huge amounts of antibodies. We will probably include it, not probably, certainly include some of that information. Uh, we were, as I said, we we're thinking to publish case reports. Uh, that being said, we would be watching the antibody levels uh, mm-hmm. to see whether or not they stay. And if all of a sudden they will drop, and they will drop kind of to the level that we aren't immune anymore, then we will most certainly consider being vaccinated because one you know, let's put it this way, I don't want to be there again. It's not an experience I would ever want to repeat. With the flu, yes, as I said, you know, I had flu a few times, and, you know, yes, and if you don't have a full within 24 hours, take time if we, she can have it a bit later, lighter. So, but again, this is not something I ever want to. I don't want an encore of it. So, uh, in terms of vaccine developments in Canada, we are anxiously waiting for to see uh, the as more vaccines are brought in to see the distribution. I know that now they are vaccinating only the first line responders. There have been issues with vaccine procurement. There have been issues with, um, you know, vaccine distribution. Uh, that they are not being discussed by CBC News by major news outlets. So, um, and unfortunately, I think US is doing much better in terms of vaccine rollouts uh, than Canada. And I really hope we will catch up. But. Uh, as again, as a scientist, as, as a medical doctor by my first degree, I think these are great. And I know I've, you know, we all have heard every possible misconception about vaccines. Sometimes it's even, you know, funny to read. <laughs> and, uh, and again, it's just because oftentimes lack of information generates fear. Fear generates rejection. This is true for vaccines. The same, if you think is true about cannabis, lack of information generates fear, fear generates rejection, right? So I think what's important is to actually provide more information about vaccine development, about the outcomes, about what we are, and which groups should get them, and what can be the benefits, side effects, you know, cause and pros. And if those are relayed to people, then there will be an in uptake. Whereas, if they are not, then, of course, you know, again, lack of information generates fear. People think, oh, you're not telling us something, right? We, we don't know this. You, is there something you're not telling us? And if there is, we think there is something you kind of think, kind of follow you, not telling us, we don't want it. Same thing with cannabis. Nobody was talking about it, or it wasn't studied enough, and then people say, oh, oh, we don't know it. Oh, we've heard that it can do this and this. Oh, we don't want it. So I think we can draw some parallels there in terms of public perception.
1: Dr. Kovalchuk, I absolutely cannot tell you how much I love that parallel that you just drew between cannabis and vaccines, because you are right on. It is a lack of information that generates fear and hesitation, In people. And I have to say that prior to the COVID pandemic, I myself was very worried of vaccines. Um, I never got a flu shot. I was very suspicious of the whole thing. And when COVID happened, I couldn't really see what the alternative was. How would we continue if we didn't get this vaccine right? So I started doing research and educating myself. And I found that most of the fears that I had around vaccines were unfounded. And I just did not have the information, like you said, to really understand what the vaccine was. So I did feel fearful of it. And I'm actually really happy to say that I received my first COVID vaccine a week ago. And I feel so incredibly lucky to have been able to access the vaccine so early, so I really want to encourage people that are listening that if you don't know or you feel a hesitation or you're very against the vaccine or the concept of it, to really just make sure you do your research and you do your homework so that you understand what it is that you are hesitant about because, like you said, a lack of information does lead a lot of times to hesitancy and fear. And we are getting towards, we're getting close ish to the end of our show today. We've got about um, 12 minutes left. So I wanted to ask you is there anything else about your research um, that you want to talk about for the last little bit of the show? And we can also open up the line to callers at this time. So if you're out there and you're listening and you have a question or a comment for us, the number at the station is 707 895 2448. That's 707-895-2448. And while we're waiting to see if anyone is going to join us, Dr. Kovalchuk, I want to just give you the floor in terms of um, anything else you would like to share about your research currently that you're doing.
0: Uh, well, uh, as, I, as I already mentioned, we are really, you know, keeping our fingers crossed and being like very Anxiously awaiting the results of the, um, of the first clinical study because, as such, it is the first ever clinical study on um, cannabis COVID. So, once we have it, we will be really, we'll have a lot of answers you know, to our questions. But overall, we are really still hoping to get uh, more studies going on other aspects of COVID because some of the lines that we have identified and we are now following up on it, actually can prevent COVID, um, uh, something like the COVID complications, the COVID long-term effects. Because we have all heard about lingering COVID, long-term COVID, right? When people feel that they are sick, even half a year after. So, and this, we have a theory of why this may happen. And we actually think that cannabis has a huge potential to combat long-term COVID. Because long-term COVID ultimately is long-term inflammation that affects the body. And also, uh, some of the changes that, you know, maybe some of the circuit changes happen also in the brain. So, cannabis has huge potential there for uh, COVID-associated, these long-term effects. Also for, uh, as we all see now, depression, anxiety, PTSD uh, on the rise everywhere. Most certainly in Canada, I think most certainly in the United States, due to COVID as well as due to lockdowns, due to the situation, due to the social isolation that happens, so on and so forth. And again, I think cannabis has huge potential to be uh, seriously looked at, to be researched, to be studied, uh, and to be used to combat those specific complications. Plus, there are some very grim complications that COVID may leave, uh, such as those people specifically who have pneumonia, they're always at risk of tissue fibrosis. So when there was inflammation and then this car tissue forms essentially in your lungs, you can't do anything about it. That's the worst part of it. The treatment essentially for severe lung fibrosis is lung transplant. Don't think that like sounds like a good option. And again... Uh, there are ways to introduce the anti-fibrotic, uh regimens during the, in the treatment protocol themselves to prevent this from happening rather than to treat it. And again, there are some cannabis strains that we identified that could be uh, potentially studied in that aspect, in that uh, real. But again, we need clinical studies for that. If it's introduced into the treatment protocols and we need a clinical study for that, if that's proven, that could really be a very serious, um, very, very you know, serious um, opportunity, essentially, as an edge HM of therapy to prevent these kind of, you know, significant quite debilitating potentially long-term complications that may occur in those people who have had... Um, a very significant getting a lung involvement in COVID. So I would say these areas these are the areas where cannabis can really make significant contribution, but we need more studies in it. We need more research. We ultimately need more funding. Getting funding for cannabis research is should I say uphill battle? I think it's worse than uphill battle. We <laughs> it's a lot of my research is oftentimes, you know, on my credit card. You know, it's very difficult. Why? Because still of that lack of acceptance, if you wish. Again, that lack of information, that that rejection, that backlog that comes from prohibition years. And when you say we want to propose something that is cannabis-based, then oftentimes it's like, oh, that's cannabis. Yeah. It's okay to take something from Opium Poppy and turn it into, you know, opioids which are painkillers. That's fine. But cannabis is still, you know, there's still that stigma associated with it. And it's so important to have programs like yours to educate people that this is just a medicinal plant with huge potential, lots of potential there for variety of things. And we have to study it. And then if we understand it, we can make a lot of important you know uh potential therapies that are based and rooted in these plant
1: thank you so much um do we do we have a caller there we potentially have a caller i'm not sure if we do um it looks like we don't have them anymore but yes always, no, I'm here. But dr kvalchuk you are absolutely oh it looks like we do oh caller You're with us. Thank you so much for calling in. You're live on the Cannabis Hour. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you. Because of the time restraints, I'll make my question very quick. Um, Here in the United States, it seems that we've had, uh, in my opinion, just issues with studies and um, getting money for certain um, colleges and institutions. It's almost like there's been... um, uh, a push to not study it. Is that the same case that you find in Canada? Do you find a discrimination against institutions that would like to study cannabis um, by being told that um, that other uh, contributions that are being made to that institution will be taken away if they study cannabis? Thank you. Uh, thank you, thank for you your caller, question. for that
1: thoughtful Wait. question.
0: Yeah, it's oh, a ahead. very very important one. Uh, in Canada, uh, we do not have this problem in the or let's say probably it, we have a problem with funding, but it's a different one. Uh, no, there is no push for institutions in no way uh, to stop their cannabis research. Uh, not at all. In uh, quite contrarily, uh, there is, for example, institutions now can apply for institutional licenses. To do a research on cannabis, whereby uh, researchers who are interested can be becoming part of these license uh, institutional license, so it makes uh, research licensing easier. That being said, getting money for cannabis research isn't easy at all, and whatsoever. And oftentimes, what happens is you submit your proposal with oh, you know towards a certain competition, right? For example, for cancer research or something very broad in general, but everybody. And oftentimes, cannabis proposals are uh, looked down upon and say, oh, that's cannabis. You know what I mean? Or oftentimes, what this may be, that's my feeling, we just got some reviews back. Uh, and you just look at this and say, with oh, your shoulders as I can. You can feel the spread of, kind of, oh yeah, that's cannabis, type of attitude, if you know what I mean. It's almost like the reviewers well, because of that lack of information, or because of some of that stigma that's still there, aren't really open, you know, open-minded, kind of you know, not open to accept it into you know, kind of into that field of research, be it you know, cancer, be it or something. So, and oftentimes you have to submit to special cannabis-only competitions, which I think. It's mean, good to have some, but it's not much money in that field. So it's difficult for Canada's projects to compete because of some of those stigmas and misconceptions that still exist, even in research community.
1: Thank you, Dr. Kovalchuk, for that thoughtful answer. Um, We have just two minutes left here. So is there any way that our listeners can learn more about your research or sort of track your, your progress? Do you have a way on the web that they can read about what you've been doing, a website or anything along those lines?
0: You know, uh, the primarily, you know, the, 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 we we do have our papers online. I I should admit I'm guilty for not updating my website for quite some time. Uh, but uh, we also have a small startup company which is called possibly RX, uh, and so Parsley RX website is uh, more up to date. It's uh, more updated. Uh, we have the you know team there that works updates. Uh, we publish our research there as well, and. Uh, as I mentioned, very, very soon we should be submitting some more articles as follow-ups to this story because we continue working on it. And we also are preparing several reviews where we would like to review and we are reviewing everything that's known about the role of cannabis in treatment of various types of diseases. We have just published one on inflammation, the big one in Frontiers, and we're preparing several more, so that you know it's for research community, but also for general public interested in uh, what is what's known about use of cannabis, mechanisms of cannabis action in certain type of areas. So that's essentially what we are doing.
1: Dr. Kobolchuk, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. You've been a fantastic and incredibly informative guest, and I hope that you'll come back and join us again in the future. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Cannabis Hour today.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me, and I really appreciate what you're doing in informing people. It's a great program. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Dr. Kobalchuk. This has been another edition of the Cannabis Hour. I'm Jen Percocci. I'll be back two weeks from today stay tuned for ron hoffer's triumphant live return for portrait and jazz that's up next at 10 o'clock